Intermittency. It's the thorn in the energy world side that developers and legislators alike are trying desperately to solve as we push towards a renewable energy-backed future. The Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, made history by including investment tax credits for standalone storage facilities broadly, not just lithium-ion batteries. The technology this includes comprises a massive space, with sectors upon subsectors for investors to deploy capital in. The popular lithium-ion battery just scratches the surface. As it's a massive space, we've amassed a massive lineup of guests for this edition of Spotlight. We'll sit down with representatives from Spearmint Energy, UBS, Mitsubishi, North Sky Capital, and two energy storage startups, Caldera and Gravitricity, to explore the energy storage solutions that exist beyond the lithium-ion battery and where investors might seek to put their money in the coming years. I'm Isabel O'Brien with Infrastructure Investor. Lithium-ion batteries are popular for a reason. The technology is proven and bankable. Really up until about 2018, maybe 2019, lithium-based battery energy storage facilities weren't economically viable, right? And it took a drop in cost of roughly 80 to 90% over the last decade, plus a significant increase in revenue opportunities through market design, and volatility around solar and wind, that batteries all of a sudden, almost overnight in 2020, became economic. That's Andrew Warrench. I'm the president, CEO, and founder of Spearmint Energy. Spearmint Energy is a relatively new alternative energy development and energy service firm that's heavily focused around battery energy storage and how we believe best facilities are the key to unlocking the potential of all renewable energy, as well as making the grid more efficient in all ways. Unsurprisingly, Warrench is a big believer in the lithium-ion battery. And so a few years ago, it was a bit of a novelty. Now everyone's very serious about it. The IRA has turbocharged all of that, and it has made it profitable to build batteries almost everywhere in the U.S. At some point in the next 10 years, I can point to almost every state and say, in 2028, a battery will be profitable there. 2027, a battery will be profitable there. And so the first negative effect, of course, though, is like every market, when you have a subsidy, the suppliers, in this case, Chinese battery manufacturers and others, immediately raise their prices because they know that the subsidy will cover that difference. And so initially, you saw a very significant spike in battery prices of 20 to 30% because the battery vendors knew that the rebates, they could grab their share of it. But despite his optimism, Warren is forthright about his reservations. For example, lithium-ion batteries have a sordid history with human rights violations when it comes to mining and child labor in the Congo. Even working with large companies, I'm not sure that we can completely eliminate the upstream risk because we don't know. And that's cobalt from the Congo, lithium, other minerals around the world all have issues. And so it's something we struggle with. We're confident that we're doing about as much as we can. And the overall net benefit to the world is a positive, but it's something that I think everyone in this space struggles with. We are working very closely at enhancing our supplier code of conduct. I will tell you, as a buyer of batteries, we feel that it is on us. We are the buyer. We need to hold battery suppliers to task. Because if not us, then who? That's not the only issue with the lithium-ion battery. They have this cool fundamental problem 
that chemical batteries degrade over time. That's Charlie Blair. I am managing director and one of the three co-founders of Gravitricity Limited. Uh, Gravitricity is a, well, we use gravity to store electricity, uh, fundamentally, our core technology. We're a R&D company based here in Edinburgh, and we're developing underground energy storage with a very, very long life. Pretty much anything that uses chemistry to move power around, move energy around, do work, has a sort of chemical degradation. And that is a real problem if you want to start thinking of energy storage as an infrastructure asset rather than as a sort of short-term asset that's paid for itself within three or four years. And that fundamentally, that's what Gravitricity is doing with our underground power storage technology, is developing something that has characteristics a lot like lithium batteries. So it can respond in less than a second. It can like output at any power that we want. We can sort of follow a load or we can respond very quickly to a frequency deviation, for example. But the point is that we can do that 25 times a day for 25 years. Whereas a battery, if you try and cycle it even twice a day, you're only getting less than five years life out of it. So it's it's a kind of orders of magnitude, much longer life. Because you start cycling it more than, say, two or 3,000 times, you're getting loss of performance and you're getting unpredictable loss of performance. So my view is we won't see all of that much grid-connected lithium batteries in the future. We'll see some of it. And particularly if you only want to have a battery in place for, say, four or five years, lithium does the job well. But we'll increasingly see energy storage assets thought of as infrastructure class. They'll be built by people with a low cost of money. You know what it's going to do. You know what the technology is. You know what its returns are going to be. Or you can project pretty clearly that you're going to have returns from your assets. And lithium's very bad at that. On top of the degradation challenge, there's also the issue of land use, which in a world full of nimbyism affects both costs and social acceptance for utility scale battery storage projects. When you look at lithium-ion batteries, you have to space them out a lot for fire reasons. So if you look at a battery, you know, it's a grid-scale battery park, they actually have a lot of unused land around them. James McNaughton there. I'm the chief executive of Caldera. We have developed a product probably better known as a heat battery. It's a thermal store. Both Blair and McNaughton head up energy storage startups, but even established infrastructure GPs like North Sky Capital, recognize that the issues with lithium-ion have made the sector ripe for disruption. Yang Lucifan is an investment principal at North Sky. Having a better degradation curve, better round-trip efficiency, lower ox consumption, better pricing, more favorable indexation formula, those are all opportunities for other technologies and vendors to come in and disrupt. First and foremost, lithium-ion batteries are used for short-term storage today. In a market where they already dominate, are there really other technologies that could come and take their place? Interestingly, we've seen flow batteries in some transactions in the market. That's Alex Lung, an infrastructure researcher at UBS Asset Management, whose infrastructure franchise covers private equity, private debt, and a range of specific strategies that include, amongst others, energy storage. We've seen announcements of them being used as well. So there's definitely a role for them. And from what I've seen and heard, the flow battery market is growing rapidly. There are reports that say that it will become a multi-billion dollar industry over the next decade. Indeed, according to SEC documents, UBS launched a bespoke energy storage fund, UBS Storage Investment Fund 1, earlier this year. And while Lung wasn't able to speak on it, he is listed on the form. In August of last year, the asset manager launched its energy storage strategy with the purchase of 700 megawatts worth of lithium-ion battery storage in Aircott. 
Whether or not this was the first investment of the fund remains unconfirmed. Again, I know I sound like a technophobe, but uh, I'm just trying to point out all the hurdles I guess the non-lithium-ion technologies have to tackle before they can become more mainstream. For flow batteries, these concerns include the space they take up due to having less energy density, the higher insurance cost, the issues securing bank financing, and the less developed supply chains. All of this when compared with their lithium-ion counterparts, of course. But at a high level, flow batteries have longer duration. They're supposedly easier to maintain. There's little or no degradation. They're not flammable. As I said, they take up a bit more space, but that's not as much of a concern. And I've even heard that maintaining it, for example, it's you can update that electrolyte solution in a flow battery as easy as changing the oil in a car. So there are a lot of features, at least on paper, that make sense. And and the term flow batteries are quite broad. They can entail a lot of different other chemistries, zinc, iron, vanadium, there are so many of them. But I think one actually non-lithium ion battery that is looking interesting is actually sodium ion batteries. There were announcements that giant battery companies like Cattell and BYDR are getting into this technology, and I certainly trust their judgment. Fawn also sees the benefits. For some of the augmentation projects where we're looking to deploy solar plus storage at industrial sites, there might be occasions where we would explore other technology types, such as flow batteries for depth of discharge, um, less thermal runaway risk. Speaking of thermal, some battery technologies, such as Caldera's thermal heat battery, aren't chemical at all. Here's James McNaughton again. It's anywhere between 8 and 24 hours of discharging. Depending on what you're matching it with, you normally want to charge it faster than you discharge. So most breweries, distilleries, you know, the sort of companies doing plastic molding, you know, a lot of these large companies, the heat load is 24 hours. So they're looking to charge in short bursts when there's surplus generation, and then we want to feed the heat out slowly. We're not looking at anything that generates electricity from heat. There are other companies doing that, but that's not one that we are focused on. So we're industrial and we're really looking at people who want heat in the 80 degrees Celsius to 200 degrees Celsius range. So that's up to about 10 bar or 150 PSI steam. That's our sweet spot. It's Brewing, we've had inquiries from pharmaceuticals, distilling. Broadly, 60% of all industrial processes use heat. We're interested in this space because when we compete against lithium-ion, it's a straight capital cost. The cost of our material is significantly below lithium-ion. It's not flammable, it's recyclable, it's non-toxic, it's low cost. Outside of industrial purposes, there is room on the grid for thermal battery storage, though the efficiency losses are significantly higher than those of lithium-ion. We're very keen to talk to either wind and solar developers or end users of industrial heat in the sort of temperature range that we're talking about. That's our sort of core focus. There is going to be this very large surplus in all sunny parts of the world from solar generation at the middle of the day. You're going to see a peak in the middle of the day and there will be excess generation. And that's the sort of where we come in and we go, it's not worth putting an electric battery in to store electricity for two hours, but it is worth putting in a heat battery. But when it comes to utility scale, Fawn probably put it best. For the most part, what we're seeing in terms of commercial deployments, they don't really require durations above four hours. We're not really seeing the market signals for that yet. And so at that range, lithium ion reigns. Medium and long-term energy storage is a different ballgame, though. Gravitricity operates in the medium-term space. Here's Blair again. Basically, what the technology is, 
is we lift a very heavy weight to store energy. We're putting energy into the system by lifting the weight. It has gravitational potential energy. And then we lower that weight back down again with some sort of electrically driven winches running as generators to discharge electricity back to the grid. So that's a sort of charge-discharge cycle, very equivalent to charging a battery and discharging a battery. And that system is sort of cost-optimized for very low levelized cost of storage for a, say, four to six hour system. We can build a system that has a 12-hour output duration. There's nothing stopping us doing it. But at the moment, we're not seeing a clear market opportunity for anything above about six hours. Gravitricity aims to operate in abandoned mine shafts, which, while abundant, are in finite supply. Other similar startups aim to deploy gravity-based storage technologies via raising a train on a hill or building a tower for a weight to fall down, etc., etc. While not commercially deployed yet on a large scale, technologies like these stand to solve both degradation and efficiency loss issues. This is a big market opportunity to have a system that can cycle lots that would cycle three, four, five, six, ten times a day, all of its power through. So it's, it's continuously providing a service. And that's something that batteries are very bad at because they degrade. There are other forms of gravity-based storage that are in commercial use, though. They're long-term based storage solutions. Pumped hydro would be the most widespread. So at the moment, well over 90% of all the energy storage in the world uses gravity. It's pumped hydro, pump water up a hill when electricity is cheaper or when you have excess nuclear at night. You let that water come back down again when you need the energy during a peak in the morning or a peak in the evening and so on. And, and that has been built by governments, typically, as big infrastructure and strategic infrastructure assets. Which, of course, has its issues. Here's what Warren has to say. Pump storage can take 10, 20, 30 years to develop, can have very high capital costs, can have other environmental harm. There's also compressed air and liquefied air energy storage, which are the more burgeoning technologies in long-duration mechanical energy storage. And even alternative battery technologies have thrown their hat in the ring for long-term storage. Kettle, the world's largest EV battery manufacturer, recently made a breakthrough in its battery density technology that promises to provide up to 500 megawatt hours of energy storage, enough to power a commercial medium-haul flight, in theory. Now, what gets a lot of press and a lot of talk in the community now is some of these longer, longer term iron flow batteries, which might be quote unquote seasonal or quote unquote, you know, weekly batteries. They have their own challenges because if you think about it, the price of daytime power and nighttime power, it varies quite a lot. And so if I'm going to buy power, let's just say in October when it's cheap and try and save it till December when it's more expensive, that has a lot of carrying cost. It's a phenomenon that Fawn has noticed too. Ambry has a liquid metal battery and Form Energy has an iron air technology. Both of those were kind of watching as lead horses for longer term duration applications. And then there's also the potential to store electricity in other forms. So we, we always talk about batteries, but something that's getting a lot of attention here in Colorado, where I'm based, is hydrogen. Ah, yes, there's no way we could go an entire podcast without mentioning everyone's favorite buzzword. So, of course, anytime you're talking about changing the form of the energy, you lose efficiencies, especially if you're going to convert it back. But hydrogen is interesting because it can also be used as a direct fuel itself in power plants and also in hydrogen-powered vehicles. Green hydrogen offers you the ability to shift energy seasonally, or what's also called seasonal energy arbitrage. That's Hari Gopalakrishnan. 
I am a manager in the Market Intelligence and Strategy Group at Mitsubishi Power Americas. We are a pioneer in providing energy technologies, power generation technologies. We offer decarbonized solutions using hydrogen-capable gas turbines, batteries, solar power generation, wind, and other related technologies. In Utah, Mitsubishi Power is developing the ACES Delta project, the world's largest green hydrogen platform, alongside partner Magnum Development. What we are starting to see is a surplus of this renewable availability during the shoulder seasons. The shoulder seasons in North America typically happens between February to May and also between October to December. Now, the surplus energy which is available in the shoulder season currently is being left on the table and it's also referred to as curtailments. Hydrogen, what it does is it gives you that ability to shift that to your peak load season, which typically in the North America happens between July and August. This is where lithium-ion really gets a run for its money. Currently, there's no way for the technology to perform a seasonal load shift. Hydrogen theoretically can. How it does that is you take that what would be otherwise curtailed energy and you do electrolysis of water and you store that hydrogen molecule in a geological repository, such as a salt cavern, which we have at our ACES Delta facility in Utah. And then you utilize that stored hydrogen during your peak load months, which is July to August, and you run that hydrogen through gas turbines and combined cycle facilities, and you meet the load. So the biggest value proposition of green hydrogen and power generation is that it gives you that ability to do seasonal energy arbitrage because of the volume of hydrogen that's created and the amount of curtailments that you have during your shoulder season. These are huge quantities of energy, which typically it's very hard to store in chemical form, which is to say like lithium-ion batteries or other types of storage devices. Geological repositories are like very large in volume. So typical salt cavern is around 150 gigawatt hours. Comparatively, size-wise speaking, is the size of the Empire State Building. The ability to perform seasonal load shifts would have huge implications for megastorm events and other massive hits to the grid. Additionally, seasonal load shifting could have revolutionary impacts on how we construct the grid itself, which, at the moment, is in need of an estimated $21.4 trillion in investment worldwide in order to meet the needs of the energy transition, according to Bloomberg NEF. The net effect on your system is your system does not need to be sized for that peak load day, as would be the case in a daily energy arbitrage strategy. And that brings down the total system cost when you look at the planning horizon between 2025 and 2050. And the resulting power price is much more lower than if you were to only use a battery-based storage strategy. So the net impact of green hydrogen is that it's bringing down your power price. And that's why we need to be including this in our portfolio. Blair sees it too. If we can use storage built into the grid in just the right places, and the location really matters, then we could spend globally billions less on the hardware of the grid and the copper of the grid. And as we electrify Africa and improve the grid in bits of America, in bits of Australia, for example, this is going to be super relevant, we think. There's a catch, though, and that's storage and transportation. Gopalakrishnan explains. Now, 
the situation is that you don't have these geological formations spread out evenly throughout uh, any continent. And the nature of these formations differ from region to region. So the challenge is to have these storage repositories at these specific locations, but then you have to transport that energy, which is hydrogen, by means of a pipeline to your consumption points, which are your power plants. And they may be located in regions such as, for example, the southern United States, where you have a huge population center, but you may not have access to such formations. The other way of transporting hydrogen, which is active today, is using tube trailers, or which is on-road transportation. But by the time you deliver that hydrogen, the cost to the consumer has gone up. So it isn't the most economical way. The most economical way is by pipeline. Now, there are other means you can create liquid hydrogen, uh, cryogenic hydrogen, transported in that form. That's even more expensive because in all of these processes, there is a round-trip efficiency loss. So the amount of energy that you put in is not what you get out at the consumption end. And uh, so is with ammonia. Now, ammonia is a carrier for hydrogen, and it's a very stable carrier. And you can convert hydrogen to ammonia. And then at the consumption point, depending on your application, if you need pure feedstock hydrogen, you would have to undergo a process called cracking. So you crack the ammonia into the constituent molecules, nitrogen and hydrogen, and then you consume the hydrogen. But if you are in power generation and you have an energy conversion technology capable of handling ammonia, which would be, again, a gas turbine or even a reciprocating IC engine, you can directly fire that ammonia and make power. And you don't need to undergo that excess cost of recracking ammonia and getting your hydrogen. So let's summarize, because there was a lot going on there. At the moment, lithium-ion remains the most popular and most financeable energy storage technology on the market. It is the asset of choice for infrastructure investors, but it also has issues with efficiency losses, chemical degradation, labor practices, and seasonal and long-term load shifting. There are a myriad of other technologies coming to market, some of which still reside in the venture capital space. When it comes to other battery-based solutions, there are batteries used on other chemical makeups on the market, as well as thermal batteries. Batteries are mobile, which lends the technology nicely to scaling. Other technologies are limited in their scalability by geographic constrictions. Then there's gravity-based storage, some of which is geographically constricted to reservoirs, a la pumped hydro, and others which are less location-dependent. And finally, there is the it girl of the energy storage landscape, hydrogen. She can be pumped into a reservoir or shipped via pipeline, but what's important is how expensive that may be and how that'll impact scale. The Inflation Reduction Act included hefty subsidies for the technology in the U.S. market. But we'll see if it proves to be enough. It'll be a behemoth of an industry, and lithium-ion will always play its role. Blair again. There'll be lithium on grids. There's going to be flow batteries on grids, I'm sure of it. There'll be opportunities for flywheels and so on. There'll be certainly a need for pumped hydro. And there's a need for very long-life assets that can provide fast response, lots of power balancing. And we see this is a kind of really interesting market for us in, in five years' time and even more in 50 years' time. I think we'll see more pumped hydro built. It's a very, very big, very capital-intensive project. I think it will get built with government support mechanisms. And we're going to see a lot of activity in hydrogen, in heat storage. But in the short term, I think we're going to see lithium on grids to some extent being displaced by alternatives.
But in the meantime, where should infrastructure investors put their money? Blair is hopeful that GPs will start looking into new technologies like gravitricities. We're very interested in speaking to institutional investors who want to get out of their comfort zone and understand what the future infrastructure investments that they'll be thinking about in three years' time, in five years' time, in 10 years' time are. If they're making technology investments with a view to the future, then we we want to have those conversations because it's a, a really exciting opportunity for us. Every infrastructure investor I've spoken to says we love the energy storage asset class, but we have real problems with chemical batteries. They don't have the characteristics that we like but the 25-plus year lifetime. So they like what we're doing. They just want to see us get fully commercial. Lung has a differing opinion. Just from an infrastructure investor perspective, we do tend to be a little more risk-averse. And I'm sure if you speak to an engineer or a venture capitalist, the answer could be quite different. And I think most infrastructure investors would say that they are technologically agnostic. But what they usually mean by that is that it still has to be somewhat de-risked. We have to remember that technology isn't the only factor, right? As I alluded to, scale is as well. When you talk to infrastructure investors, the big question usually isn't around what's going to be the next technology, right? Just because of how we make investments. The bigger question for us is where to invest next, right? More around geography and markets because California and Texas are definitely leading the charge in the U.S. But what are the next regions? A lot of people are talking about the Northeast, like New England and New York, areas that have very aggressive renewables ambitions. And some people are looking overseas and into other countries, maybe in Europe, where they're really trying to catch up to the U.S. in terms of energy storage deployment. And I think those are the more important trends that a lot of infrastructure investors are focused on. He admits, though, that there's room for him to be wrong. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, people were already talking about energy storage and lithium ion was one of the technologies they talked about, but it wasn't like a clear winner back then. No one really knew. So it's just evolved over time and that that just eventually happened. And I'm sure 10, 15 years from now, in hindsight, we'll see some technologies out there that's just so obviously bankable, economic and efficient that Mm -hmm. it'll emerge as a big winner. But again, from where I sit, it's just hard to figure out which one it is. After all, none of us have a crystal ball. If you want to learn more about energy storage, be sure to check out Infrastructure Investors' recent webinar on the topic, The Investment Case for Battery Storage, as well as our May magazine feature, Batteries Lead the Charge. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts or at PEI's various titles online. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a rating and review. For Infrastructure Investor, I'm Isabel O'Brien. Thanks for listening.